It's one of those experiences that I look back now and this just like overwhelming like passion, joy, love, excitement. I had no idea what was ahead of me. I had no idea that I was going to be in a retail position. I had no idea I'd have employees. I just remember drinking that cup of coffee and being like, I could do this for the rest of my life. Hey everyone, welcome to In Progress with Motion Tactic. In this episode, Kyle and I talk with Lawrence Jarvie, the co-founder of Provision Coffee. Provision is a specialty coffee roaster, cocktail bar, and eatery in Phoenix, Arizona. During our conversation, we talk quite a bit about Lawrence's vision for the future of Provision and the strategies that they're using in order to create significant community impact. If you find yourself in the Phoenix area, we highly recommend that you give them a visit. So without any further ado, let's jump in. Welcome to In Progress with Motion Tactic. Today, we have Lawrence Jarvie on the show. What's up, Lawrence? <laughs> <laughs> How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be here. Thank it's you for good having to me. See you, man. Um, so we kind of met in a unique way. Oh man! So we're gonna go way back. Eleven years. Uh, yeah. So you you wandered into a coffee shop at a church. Oh, dude. And that's where we met eleven years ago. You were senior in high school. Yeah, I think in like the that. third day I met you, you gave me a gym subscription, you know, those like grocery stores and you go to Fry and they give you like a yeah. scan. You had a buddy that had like owned the gym down the road and it was a free pass for like life. Oh. Do you remember that? No. Oh man. Oh, how it, I got it my works. hands on that one. It worked forever. You're like, I don't know if it works, but I've never used it. It worked every time. Really? Oh, it was great. Yeah. Fun story. Oh, I probably stole them or something. Like no, that. you didn't. You okay. didn't steal. That's great. Paul Gunther wouldn't let you steal. Yeah. But I, I remember uh, you, you had a passion for, for coffee, but you were doing, you were, you were also like a, a bartender at the time too, right? When I first met you. Yeah. I, so it wasn't even so much the coffee passion. It was just, I had a, I had a, I had a passion for people and coffee was kind of the tool that was, you know, coming out of that season of life. That when you met me, um, I had stepped into the Grove uh, to basically just be available to serve. I was kind of exhausted from being in the service industry and had no idea that I was going to end up staying at a church and getting back into ministry and then going on staff and then running a coffee program. And here I am 11 years later running a coffee program and have my own store and 30 employees and lots of responsibility. Yeah. So what was it about the product itself? So... Uh, I get that you know you're yeah. interested in and in using it as a tool for people to get to know each other to converse. Sure, it's like using it as that medium, right? But but why coffee? Like what what was it about coffee itself that you were drawn to? <laughs> so the more I became, I mean, so I'll give you a backstory. I've always, I mean, like I think a lot of people who drink coffee, I had traveled a lot when I was in my early twenties and had spent a lot of time backpacking through Europe and you know basically going on mission to third world countries. And, uh, the one thing that I was always drawn to in coffee was the idea of like space, but I didn't realize the backside of coffee, how much there was an overlap between the spaces that I was visiting and being third world countries and also drinking coffee shops and places, you know, in Spain and Italy and like all these different places that were really like cool and romantic. So I had become really curious when I was at the Grove, I immediately, I didn't know coffee was, first of all, was, was a fruit you know, it's a cherry um, with two seeds. I was like, oh, that's fascinating. And some varietals are single. And uh, the more that I did research, the more I became passionate about people who grew the coffee. And I realized that there was something, you know, back in the day when I was living in LA, 
I mean, you guys probably remember this, but when Tom's shoes yeah. came out, you know, one for one model, I loved, I was on the driving range, actually at Lakeside Golf Club, doing a club demo with one of the guys who happened to be a member there was one of Blake's partners, uh, who essentially was wearing Tom's shoes. And I was like a fanboy. I was an LA guy. I'm like, these are super cool. Like this model's awesome. Like the, the idea of helping somebody with a transaction, but also still being relevant to pop culture and providing something that is wearable that I don't feel like a dork. Like, you know, not to say that some, you know, some organizations use things you're like, I'll buy it once, but I'm not going to buy it again. Yeah. I owned like five pairs of Tom. So it was like, I kept rebuying them even though they were cheap and I was burning through them. I, I stood for, I became what I would call an ambassador of the brand. And so this idea of using something that you would sell to a, potentially help on the other side was really attractive to me. And it fit within the alignment of my heart for ministry people. So as I started doing all this research, I found that coffee happened to be grown in a third world country. And that's where it really started to kind of like fire for me. I'm like, okay, there's more to this. And like the vision side of it, you know, I'm a faith guy. And so on the faith side of it, I really felt like the Lord was kind of laying out this really interesting, um, you know, if I were to fast forward now, it was, I would use coffee as a tool to grow a community locally and globally. I would engage in space and creating space for people to gather. And I would use coffee as a tool to do that in different capacities. And I was like, that's a lot. Like, I am not the creative guy. I'm the question guy. So I'm not the guy that's going to go and create a float spa like we were talking about earlier before I got here. I'm the guy who asked the question, how did you do that? And then I'm going to find the people to do that. So in the midst of this conversation that I'm having between myself about coffee and my curiosity, I went to one of my really best friends who passed away last year, um, unfortunately, and he knew me better than anybody. And I told him like this vision that I had and he was like, First of all, I was I was searching for an answer. Like, what do I do with all this? Because I remember when I met you, I was I had been basically come on to the Grove to do this coffee thing, and I was like, towards the end of the year, I was ready to go home. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I miss LA. Like, yeah, the the girl that I was dating when I had first got to Arizona broke up with me. I had kind of been in a relationship with who is now my wife, um, ironically, um, which is awesome. And we have two beautiful girls now. Uh, I remember thinking back to myself as I'm having this conversation with Joel and I just said, what do you think? And he said, well, he's like, I gotta be really honest with you. It's really easy. You either say yes or you say no. And he's like, second of all, you're just not that creative. And I was like, (laughs) sick. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks, bro. Uh, But it was, it was literally, that's where it all started for me. And I just said, he's, I was, he's like, what do you have to lose? He's like, he's like, I know you really well. And and I know you, you're, you're an easy, like I'm very, when I get behind something, I'm super passionate. Like I love being involved in what I do. It's not hard for me to engage. Sometimes it's a little bit overwhelming. As you guys know, the responsibility of running a business can get a little overwhelming. But mm-hmm. once you get to see some of the fruits, like the celebration of the fruits totally outweighs the burdens in a lot of ways. So yeah. I said yes and just basically um, started telling people about it. Like, hey, I want to go to these countries and find coffee and we had a mutual friend, Mark Zorowski, actually was a pastor at the time. Uh, I mentioned it to Mark Zorowski, and literally, I kid you not, this is how this story went. I told Mark Zorowski about this, and he's like, dude, you know, Mark gets like really excited. Dude, he's like, you need to meet this guy. He's like, I met him on a plane seven years ago when I was in Guatemala. His name's this. Look him up on Facebook. And I was like, 
Mark, wait, you don't even know him anymore? He's like, no, but I met him on an airplane. He works in Guatemala. Like, you should totally. And it was just so funny how, like, the guy actually was real. And we talked for, like, the next six months. And when I told him that I had this vision, the guy was like, he wasn't even excited about me. It was like, it, it almost was like he was just, like, wanted to see if I was full of crap. Mm-hmm. And essentially, he, he invited me to Guatemala thinking that I would never show up. And one day, I, like, booked my plane ticket and I was in Guatemala. And that was like, that's kind of the backstory of how provision, I mean, it wasn't even called provision. It was called something pathetic, like uh, the love coffee story or <laughs> again, I'm not the creative. Um, but I, as soon as I, as it was, so the collision of third world countries, coffee, which I loved. And then being at origin, I remember drinking my first cup of coffee as I'm sitting in this finca in the Northern region of the, what's called the, the Excel triangle of Guatemala. And I was just like, I mean, it's one of those experiences that I look back now and this just like overwhelming, like passion, joy, love, excitement. I had no idea what was ahead of me. I had no idea that I was going to be in a retail position. I had no idea I'd have employees. I just remember drinking that cup of coffee and being like, I could do this for the rest of my life. And I was like, all right. And I, I mean, I just put pen to paper. So that's what led to kind of like where provision kind of came out of. Mm-hmm. And then what the next step was is like, you know, how do we do that? You know, how do we actually yeah. put these thoughts, these ideas, this passion into a business? And I mean, you guys have gotten to know me over the years. I, I didn't, I had no idea I was an entrepreneur. Uh, I didn't realize that, you know, there's a lot of people who claim to be entrepreneurs or not entrepreneurs. They're just have a business idea and they run after it. But like, I see something and it's like, Oh, those shoes. And it's like, okay, well, how did they do that? And I start, you know, we were talking a little bit about this, like running the numbers and yeah. like my wife, she, I drive my wife crazy when we go to restaurants. Cause I'm like, I can do that better. And she's like, can you just, can you just stop? Don't, don't critique them. <laughs> I'm like, look, this hamburger, it's like four ounces. I'm like, and we paid $12 and it's, it's not even good. I'm like, why are we paying $12 for this burger? And she's like, can you just stop? We're just, can we have a date? <laughs> Because people pay for it. Um, Anyways. So you so, mentioned that you put pen to paper in that I did. moment. What, I did. What does that mean? What did that mean to get... So part of the the vision that I had coming from, you know, running, you know, around the ideas that, that Blake had with the one-for-one one model, I, I, I really, like my heart for, for third world countries is, is that I, I read a lot of books about like when helping hurts and like the things that I saw in ministry that I didn't like necessarily, where it was almost like, Hey, we're going to give you the American version of how to live. I'm not that guy. Mm-hmm. I love culture. I studied anth- anthropology and sociology. I double majored in college in it. I love seeing infrastructures and culture and how cultures work. And I think that when we try to do something like Americanize something, it's, it's not beautiful at all. It can be very attractive and have a lot of amenities to it. But at the end of the day, like it just draws people away from like the things that they've known their entire life that they get excited about. So, I, when I put the pen to the paper, I was like, I really want to use coffee to essentially meet the needs that I saw and that what we were asking. And it was kind of like, so this is where provision, the name comes from. Um, by definition, I wanted to use coffee to provide provision, which was healthcare, education, water, microfinancing, sustainability, you know, all of the things that definition of provision would provide for someone. And so we, as we asked questions when we were at origin, like one of the things that came out was like education, education, education. The farmers just wanted their kids to be educated. They didn't want new, they didn't want new farms. They didn't want new cars. They didn't want new houses. And mind you, they're like living in Adobe brick, like, you know, with little metal roofs and chickens running around with a coal stove. Um, and they're just like the most, they're, 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 they all have like the same clothes and 
the happy, the joy that lived in their homes. It was like, so that kind of mentality, you know, is where I just kind of started processing through and believe it or not, I mean, we're 11 years into it and we're just now getting to start to do some of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So the missionary kid side of me was like, we can do this like right away. And it's like, no, it has not been easy to try to transition and actually make an impact that's lasting. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I've learned, you know, that it takes a long time to actually move the needle. And I think that's something that our culture is like, no, just you have a headache. Here's an aspirin. Like you're going to fix it and this is how it's going to work. And I think I had to get a little bit away from that dreamer mentality and get into the trenches and realize, hey, there's more to coffee that I don't understand that I need to learn more. So I just basically, I've been learning a lot and I'm still learning and I don't ever want to stop learning in the process. Have you guys pursued like a certified B Corp status or anything We like just that? started talking about it again. We we essentially, when B Corp came out, it was something that Dan and I were super passionate about. The The thing that really intrigued me about B Corp was the guy who had the processing company in Seattle um, that essentially had equal wages for everybody in his company. I am super passionate about, you know, disrupting like different types of um, environments and jobs and stuff like that. And I think that, I don't know if you guys know this story, but uh, the gentleman, I forget the name of the actual payment processing company, but he was doing really, really well. And he sold all of his wealth and decided to pay all of his employees $75,000. His name's like Dan Price or something like that. I think that's right. Yeah. And they've, and they were, everybody told him like, you're nuts. Like that's the dumbest thing you could ever that gravity do. Payments? Gravity payments. Yeah. Gravity right. payments. Yes. So the, have you, I don't know if you've read the stories on this stuff, but like they did a bunch of studies where he started talking about like in the inception of the company up until the point where he basically made the decision to pay every, you know, sell his wealth and his assets and basically be able to pay everybody an equal value wage. They, at the time they only had like two kids having per year. They were only like, there was only two kids being birthed in the office from women or families in that, in the, in the year of the time from the company had been inception. And he was like, that's crazy. Cause now it's like hundreds and they've seen this dramatic change in culture where they actually like 10 X their revenue and they were already a profitable company when they were doing business, but they, they blew the cover off of it. And so the, the B corporation side and also that equal pay to like, that's one of Dan and I's goal is, is that I'm not a greedy guy. Like we are out to change coffee in that direction to, I mean, if, I mean, could you imagine like a livable wage for a barista where they're not having to worry about paying, if they can make $75,000 a year being a barista, like, would you ever leave your job? Okay. This is an interesting thought, but I'm going to challenge it from a super capitalist perspective. And I'm not saying that I resonate with the questions I'm about to ask. I'm just trying to challenge it. Does a barista create that much value? Oh man, you'd be amazed. So in, in what sense when you say value, like I was going to follow up with that too. Well, I think that financial or like social. That's a really great point to challenge my, my definition of value on that. where, Where do you define value in terms of the person? I think that um, there's like the Elon Musk quote that like your your compensation is relative to the difficulty of the problems that you solve. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a, a high interchangeability between baristas um, and potentially there's more uh, supply than demand for that type of labor. So I would say, so so their value is is not based on how much there is uh, what they do. And I think that's the, that's the shift that um, uh, the payment processing company had, which was the janitor who's 
essentially, uh, and this is, I'll, I'll get monastic on you here for a minute, like kind of that part of, I'm a big, like, I love the mystics. So like Brother Lawrence and St. Francis of Assisi, people who would use mundane um, things like taking out the trash or gardening and basically glorifying God in that process. So it's like, you see a piece of trash, piece of trash in the ground and you pick it up and you're like, I'm so happy to pick up that piece of trash and contribute to what culture is doing. So it's not so much the value that they bring in their job role, it's the amount of value that you place in them, which basically I think exceeds their own expectation of themselves, which basically then pours back into the company. So what we've realized and what I've realized is that the more I pour into people, the more value that they bring back to the company. So for instance, if you worked for me and let's say I saw you as somebody who was struggling away from work with certain things, I would take the time to try to get to know you and understand that so that I could potentially create avenues that you could pursue or support that you could have. Now do that from a financial, like I'm a big guy, it's like put your money where your mouth is. So their value actually ends up changing because now they're equal to their peers. Now it does create complication like between this, these are the things that they study that everybody that was a capitalist. You deleted competition. You delete competition, but you encourage, you encourage teamwork. And so what happened was, is everybody, the idea of being on a hierarchy where you've got a CEO and a sales rep, they all came to the same table. Now they understood that their classification for their job actually does them justice when they fall into their lane and they start depending on their peers who's an expert. So all of a sudden, you would think the competition would basically create people not wanting to work because it, it's a, like competition's healthy, right? Like, you know, having being in a sales environment, coming from a sales background, like competing with somebody or even from a sport analogy, like I want to beat. When I play golf professionally, it's like I stepped on the golf course, we might have been friends, but I want to beat you. Like, I'm going to beat you. And and I've beat my head against this wall quite a bit in talking about, but as I've given my own employees and raising the bar for them and like getting closer and closer to doing that, I see their, their basically participation as an employee where a normal, let's say a normal like eight to five barista, what their roles would be, con- their contribution to being a barista. They exceed those every single time because their value has actually been 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 raised as me valuing their time so that that there's a time separation between work and life and so and and i think capitalists are like no no you can't do that like you need to have these things i i disagree i think that when you put people on an equal playing field it allows them when you give somebody a livable wage in the state of arizona to own a home to be able to provide for their family to drive a car and not be in debt now they're not stressed out. So when I take that off the table and basically give somebody some security as an employee, they come to work and they're the best barista you've ever seen. Now, it means they might shift and there might be a different path for them in the company that they're still going to make the same wage, but they get more value knowing that I value them versus me placing value on them on what they can or cannot do. It's a really interesting concept when you start to like pull it apart and say like, okay, this person qualifies for this job. You make $150,000 where you're straight out of college and you only have one year of experience. I'm going to pay you 30 grand. You got to work your way up to this point. Yeah. Okay. So this sounds like it's got positive effects for employees that were under the threshold for what the new median is going to be. But for the people I, who are on the above. Yeah. If I was making a hundred grand and you're, yep. They quit, <laughs> which guess what? Quit. Yeah. For me, that's, that's, that's the cultural change and the shift that I think that you have to be willing. So as owners, that's how do you fill a position where the market compensates we, people at a, a whatever if it's if it's uh, you'd in, be amazed okay people want to work for people who understand and value them over their actual so i my team is like i i kid you not like 
if you were to look at the resumes that I look at of college graduates, master's degrees, I'm like, what are you doing here? And they're like, we just really like, we love what you're doing. We want to be a part of community. We miss that part. These are people that chased a big salary who found no happiness that were literally stressed out on wall street or working in some like, you know, really high end sales position job, making half a million dollars. And they were completely disappointed with their own lives. So this is currently implemented. This is starting to be implemented. This is where, I mean, we as a company have to scale into more stores in order to gain value in order to bring back into the company. But essentially as we make, as we become profitable and move out of this like really crazy season we've all been into this, that's our goal. Like we really want to push into equal opportunity jobs. And, and you know, the other thing is, is like we've, nobody in our company has come in and gained a, you know, a, a high ranking role without starting at the bottom. So we raise leaders up. I don't, I don't like if you came in and said, Hey, I've got 10 years of research experience. Guess where you're going to start? You're going to start on the POS. You don't get to come in and pull your rank. Like you earn your right to be in your position, whether you're talented or not, you still need to go through and understand the process. And we've, yeah. and people quit and that's totally fine. Like I, I've had people who are super talented. They don't want to be a part of a team. They want to shine by themselves and see that they can do it. That's not what, I mean, for me it, to be in a work environment and you guys have a very open office, which I think is, you know, these tech companies have done a really great job of doing, I mean, there's a lot of studies behind this type of work environment. <laughs> The has, re- has some most pros of them, and cons. Most of them, the the, the recent ones, have, have the outcome has been that there are less productive. Yeah. But like, what's the alternative? Throw people in cubicles and treat them like rats? I I think that there I I think there's some skewed studies there. Yeah. I really do think that. Yeah. You know, it's really about culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's not about. I mean, open space just is and isn't is essentially encouraging people to build. But you guys, as as leaders and founders. You're the ones that are steering culture that allow that space to grow or not. And I yeah. think the bigger companies they're doing the studies on is, is that they basically like, yeah, they created these cool environments and people like, you know, productivity is wherever it needs to be, blah, blah, blah. But were they really pouring into people? No, yeah. they were just taking money, dispersing it into things they thought would create things. Now, the companies that did it right, I think that you don't see a lot of those studies where they create environments like, so there's a local company called Stewardship. I think you yeah, guys are familiar with Mortgage. Yeah. Grant and his team, Jeremy, I was on Jeremy's podcast this week and we were talking a little bit about culture. They've done an amazing job of understanding what culture is to them. And I would say productivity for them is through the roof. Um, they don't have any issues. Like people have an option to work from home, obviously through the pandemic. They, and they're, they just continue to grow. Like numbers don't lie. And I think that that's because they as a company, as leaders are pouring into the culture as opposed just to creating space. Space was one thing. Culture is another thing. Now take the two together, and I think they work really, really well. One of the things you mentioned a while ago, sorry to backtrack so much. No, you're much, good. But you mentioned Mark Zorowski, and when you brought this um, That's right, you idea, know Mark. I forget. Yeah. Uh, when you were forming this idea and you brought it to him, um, he connected you to someone. And I feel like a lot of entrepreneurial stories, um, just like your own, they they get this, it's like starter fluid. It's like ether in the carp when you start something so quickly because there's people that are able to unlock opportunity that you just didn't have before. And that I feel like is, is such a revelation uh, for, for me over the last few years. And for a lot of people is that one new introduction to someone um, can be business and life changing. Right. Um, 
Has that been a consistent theme for you? Are there other individuals that you feel like have unlocked uh, massive oh, opportunity sure. or new growth for you? I think it's actually relationships will definitely unlock growth. But I think the key is as an entrepreneur is, is you just have to do stuff. You just need to start doing it. I think that's the actual, like the, the relationship might start something, but as soon as you say yes is where the fuel comes from. Something, somebody else is actually just actually pushing the pedal for you. So yeah. I, I think that, you know, as an entrepreneur, a lot of people struggle with starting. I mean, it's, they have ideas. I mean, m my wife is an artist and she's an amazing artist. And I'm like, if I could paint like you, like I'd be a millionaire. Like she's like straight up like Picasso. Like she does crazy stuff with chalk. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, why don't you do this? Like, cause she's kind of, she's a little intimidated by it. And it's, you know, an artist, like there's an insecurity there. Like people are going to see my art. And that's the same thing for every entrepreneur, like, or anybody who's trying to start a business. They're afraid of the things they don't know. But the people that say yes, like, you know, I think Gary Vee is like, just jump in and do that shit. And, and get beat up in the process. And you'll find out really quick if you're made out to do it. And I think once you you define, you know, who you are, and that's a process, obviously, that's a really long process. As you guys are learning, there's the ups and the flows of understanding where you are. Um, but I will say, you know, back to people investing in me was me asking people to invest in me. People are not going to come to you and say, Tyler, I want to invest in you because I see you doing a great job. I mean, how many times has that really happened to you? Yeah. Yeah. Not, not goose egg for me. Yeah. I don't know about for you, no. <laughs> no. but I mean, we t you can talk about relationships. So, uh, your dad was one of those relationships for me. Um, when I, I remember meeting your dad tones, we were, uh, I can't, you were going to give me a computer and your dad had never met me before. <laughs> and I rolled up in the driveway and he's got like, I'm like this like Italian kind of like laid back, you know, like, He's sizing me up type of thing. And, and I was super intrigued because he, he was kind of a, you know, he was, um, uh, he was really like, there was fun banter that happened between him and I that really intrigued me. And then I got to know more about your dad and I reached out to your dad. He didn't come to me. I said, I'd love to have lunch with you. I'd love to kind of learn more about you. I'd love to, I'm like, I need people like yourself who are enjoying life and also pursuing for, at the time, like from him and I, it was, we're pursuing faith. And also understanding business and leadership styles. And we'd have really hard conversations. I mean, it wasn't just like, hey, do this in your business. It was actually like an unfolding of character. You know, what do you do when you're facing a pandemic? What do you do when your marriage is struggling? What do you do when, you know, someone is, has passed away or you don't have the money to pay payroll? Like, what do you do? And I think that's those relationships that I think for, for me, it was definitely a unique gift. I, I went back in time. You know, when I, all the way when I was like 13, 14 years old, I always, whenever I became curious or passionate about something, I always asked somebody who was better than me. And I was like, that's, that was a gift. Like nobody taught me that. And my, I mean, I just kind of just happened. And I think that for me as an entrepreneur, I encourage other people because here's the thing. If someone came to you, it's the greatest form of flattery when someone comes to you and asks for help sincerely and like wants to get to know you. And if they're really, from a business standpoint, even in a life standpoint, like, if someone's like, Hey, I just want, I really love like how you approach life. I want, I just I would love to have a cup of coffee with you. Could you make time for me? Hopefully you're not a, you know, a jerk and you respond kindly. Cause that's really what, you know, I think that's what, that's what humanity should be more open to. And that's where we find as, as, you know, as fathers, as, as business people, that's where we get to pour into other people that have poured into us. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You brought that up because Tyler and I are kind of in the mode now of asking a lot 
like asking to meet with people, mm-hmm. asking for something, but we don't know like necessarily uh, where we're at now, how to provide them with a ton of value. But it, people, people, they respond, right? Yeah. People here and there, you know, they do. And, but and, you guys, uh, I think here's the deal. Like you're sitting in a, you know, 3000 square foot office space. How old are both of you guys? 28. You're 28, which I just started when I was 27. And, and to put into, you know, perspective, like you guys have done revenues higher than I've probably ever done in a year. And there's two of you guys. And I think what a lot of, what a lot of times happens is, is that we're looking towards the finish line and we're not looking at what we've actually done. And, and it's, it's, and I, I'm a, I'm a victim of my own success. Like to see where I started and what has been created and what I've been given the opportunity to do. I don't look around enough to see like, I have 30 employees. I have one. I mean, I'll be biased. We have one of the best coffee shops in the Southwest. Like we've done all of these things and I never actually give myself enough, like, I don't want to say pat on the back, but I don't, I don't like, I don't boost my ego or I don't jump back in you and congratulate myself. Like, Hey, hard work has really starting to pay off. And I think that you guys don't even realize, you know, you've got X amount of, you'd say, was it 15 employees? A little less, but 12. 12? Yeah. So 12 employees and you're looking to hire more employees and you know, you're, you're pivoting through a, the, one of the hardest times in history. You don't give your guys self enough credit into realize what you've already done and you're just beginning and, you know, however long this run goes, what you've learned in this process, the next five years, the next 10 years, you're going to do so much more just by what you've already applied. And I know you guys both just set out to do something and you just started. So you're both entrepreneurs and you're doing something really beautiful, but a lot of times you don't give yourself enough credit because we, you're, we you're faced that. with a mountain of yeah. shit. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, what do we have to conquer today? You don't yeah. think like, oh my gosh, like my employees can come to work and enjoy a beautiful space and have two people who care about them and genuinely care about them. Not just like, Hey, I want you to get the job done, but you're like, you know, there's a culture thing for you guys. I know that you guys are both believers in people. Mm -hmm. And the last thing you would want to do is stress people out to not be able to live a life that would magnify, I think, uh, opportunity to just be a good human. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the culture component is, is really huge for us. And I feel like it continues to become uh, more of like a full-time responsibility for people as the organization scales and quantity of people. Right. Because uh, at this size, we have close personal relationships with all of our staff. Right. Um, at 30, I'm sure that's harder. It's way harder. Right. Yeah. When you go from 15 to 30, it, it's definitely, it's hard. But I, I, because of the time that I spent with the people who have been with me for the last five years, I mean, everybody wants to like be around the the guys who, you know, started and it's like, I'm not that much more special than my, my, my team's actually better than me. And I tell them all the time, my manager, Jenny, who runs Arcadia, she's way better than I could ever be a manager. Yeah. Joel, who runs my operations, deals with systems way better than I deal systems. Dan, who's my business partner, like does Excel sheets and creativity way better than I could ever do. And I totally humbly, like, I, I'm so stoked that they're able to do that and they're my core team and they do that much and more for the people that they work with as their peers. They go out of their way and you guys realize as you grow, like, yes, making yourself available is just being authentic and transparent and being available is key. But like the people that you hire that are going to be training the next, you know, group of people to watch them facilitate in the culture and live what you guys always dreamed of being part of your culture, you're going to find even more rewarding when it's not you directly. And I've been like standing back watching and thinking like, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, 
I never imagined that I could actually hire people to do a job to do it better than me yeah. and then watch it actually be, it's like watching this, you know, as entrepreneurs, you play that like reel in your head and you're like, Oh, that'd be really cool to see that happen. And then in real time it happens and you're like, yeah, damn, that's cool. We're getting different tastes of that. Like mm -hmm. we promoted someone to director of operations, uh, who was showing, uh, talent in, in areas that Kyle and I, you know, we, we could sub in, but it's not our natural fit. And as she started to grow in her role, now she's hiring people and propelling that culture forward and, kind of uh letting like shaping them as they come through right. and making sure they're fully embodying our culture and they understand our core values and uh seeing that stuff get replicated without our direct involvement is like whoa we built something that other people believe in and other people are propagating versus just us being the ones that have to continually build that and propagate it and that's that's the key to success if you're building in building culture and ethos is when we talked about it a little bit earlier, when your team becomes ambassadors for the brand that they work for, it's no longer a product that you're selling. It's a cultural and it's a style of like what you guys are supporting. And that's the big shift where you see a lot of companies become successful. And who knows what the roof is? It doesn't matter as long as like people underestimate like little success for like massive success, right? They're like, oh, I want to make millions of dollars. Well, most of the people that I know that make millions of dollars it's it's there's very few people that I know that make millions of dollars that actually are very happy. And that's a fascinating thing to think about. Yeah. Because we're all trying to get to this place of comfort and like security and freedom. And then once we have it, we don't know what to do with it. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Most of those people look around them and everybody wants something from them. Yeah. And it's a very, very hard place to be in. And I happen to have a few friends and I have one friend in particular who's an amazing like, he just stewards his money like I've never I mean he lives really well and he takes care of himself and he has really nice things but like the way he loves on people is silly like it's just it's just an incredible thing to look at somebody who has wealth and gives it away that's like a diamond in the rough and so that just goes to show you like consistently like so much of American culture is built off this idea of success and I think it's a lie and I think that success is attainable and I think that money and capitalism is great in a lot of, in a lot of ways. But essentially if we shift the paradigm a little bit and focus on our culture and focus on our people, I think you, the, the outcome would be much more rich. And, you know, if you guys make a couple million dollars and that's the roof and you guys are able to, you know, support your families and potentially pivot into other things and build an, you know, build a system that works like, and they, I think people set their expectations too high when they're already walking in something and you see a lot of people like go through that route and then they come back down and like, man, I really just wish that I could just go back to the simplicity of what it was. So that idea of success drove them to a place when really they'd been sitting in that already 10 years ago. And I think the 10 years that they wish they could get back, they can't. And that's the one thing you can't get back is you can't get back the time to go back in time. So I think what's happened this last year and I'll kind of end my rabbit trail here is it's caused people like you and I to really look and uh, to pull back the layers of our businesses, to pull back the layers of ourselves and have a closer look at the heart behind what we're doing and how do we maximize potential and really start to see, for me, it's to see the spirit of God move into what I do on a day-to-day -day basis. Like how does, how does the heart pump blood into other parts of the body where I'm, I have a sense of contentment and gratefulness for what I'm doing and not, basically measuring it by how much money's in my bank account. And I think that's probably the hardest thing that we face as entrepreneurs is, you know, it's money, 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 make more money, money, money. Right. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, money doesn't going to do any good if you don't have any friends. Mm 
Mm-hmm. It's not going to do you any good if you're living in a huge house with nobody around you. I'd rather live in a small house with a, with a cool neighbors that I could love on and like take care of them. And let's like, Hey, your car broke down. What if I could just write a check to my neighbor? Cause I'm living within my means and I buy him a brand new car and just give him the car. Like, could you imagine the blessings? Like that's way cooler than having six cars that you can't drive, that you just look at that you pay a crap ton of money for. So perspective and paradigms, I think once we shift those things a little bit more, at least for me, my, this, this is my own personal opinion that I love talking to younger guys about. I'm like, what really does success, what does success really look like for you? And have you thought about like, you know, time and have you taught, I mean, you, you both have children. So that's like the greatest reward I think in this whole cycle of everything. Like when I get home and my girls like scream daddy and like my nine month old, like just looks at me with like her tongue out of her mouth and she's got like googly eyes and she's like, like I'm her dad. Nothing beats that look. And I think that's that if I could get that look in people, not saying like their tongue out and like, they're like, Oh, it's so excited to see you. But the idea that they're excited to do life with you. Can you imagine the shift in our own crap? So if we start focusing on other people as opposed to our own success, and this goes back to ethos and culture, what happens is, is that basically people start showing up for you and the focus of this narcissistic culture that we live in is no longer narcissistic. It's focused on serving to the least of these down to get biblical and go back to the, the word of God is it says to the least of these that we serve. If we do that in our businesses, if we do that in our, to our neighbors, if we do that in our life, you are going to be more rich than you ever imagined. And you, there's no longer like this scale of like, what is richness? It is the fullness of God. So anyways, it's hard to get like pastoral on you guys. <laughs> well, the, the revolutionary, the, the revolutionary war, the industrial revolution really, I think screwed things up. <laughs> if you want to go historical, yeah, it did. I think it I totally mean, did. It's, people it's, lived way more in community before then. They had to. They were forced to. Yeah. And that's why third world countries that, that like, I mean, that's why the beauty of third world countries has been, I think, such an eye opener for me. Like when, when you go to places like Africa and you've been to Africa and Tyler, yeah. and, and you see, like you look around and you're like, oh my gosh, there's trash and there's like open toilets and there's, I mean, there's poverty like everywhere. But then you meet these people. And you're like, they're so full of life and they don't even have the ability to drink water or they don't have privacy and like their homes are all shattered, but their, their, their spirits to live life is so much different. That is like, I'm like, how do we do that? Yeah. That's what I loved about coming from mission trips. I was like, how do we, how do we tap into that? And we have, we just have too many, we have too many resources. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. I'm, I'm interested to get to like, hear your. Like if you can kind of educate us a little bit, how how does coffee work? Like, what are the economics of coffee? Because what I what I've heard is that it's relatively similar to wine. So, uh, tasting characteristics, yes. Origin. So, wine is terroir. So, like where 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 grapes are grown, obviously varieties of grapes have different taste components. And so, coffee is the same way. So, regionally, soil, you know, air, moisture, density, um, uh, altitude. All of these things have a, an effect like a grape would be affected into a wine. And the basically the the cliff notes on coffee is is that the I work in the specialty market, so the way that coffee is graded essentially is from zero to a hundred, just like you would you would rate wines, like you know, there's a ninety-three wine or a ninety-two wine or whatever, you know, the rating is on it. There are people in, you know, coffee associations that will rate 
coffees based on a cupping score, just as you would taste wine. So it's a very similar. Coffee is actually a lot more extreme in the terms of tasting profiles. It's got a lot more characteristics into it than wine actually does. So there's a huge overlap there. So those, the, the specialty wine drinker is definitely the specialty coffee drinker. So if you like wine, it's an easy conversation to kind of get into. Now, the, the dirty side of coffee is, is that it's, it's a commodity. It's one of the largest traded commodities in the world. And what happens is, is that we as consumers don't really know where our coffee comes from. And my goal with provision was to change that. Like we're currently working on, so I have a, I have a couple guys in specialty coffee. Um, one of them is, is my business partner. His name is Kevin, um, Kevin Boland from St. Frank coffee. He owns uh, St. Frank in San Francisco and one of the probably most competitive specialty markets in the country. And he has started a little bit after I did, but we essentially like we've both been on this mission to source coffee consistently over time. And what I mean by that is, is that because it's a commodity, you could say, I'm going to start a coffee company tomorrow. And you could go to a broker and say, I want to buy a coffee from Guatemala. I'm looking for like an 87 coffee with these characteristics. And the broker could say, cool, here's some samples that meets the needs. You can buy this. Now you don't know anything about the farmer. It's here's the price and here's how much you can buy. Here's what's available and they'll ship it to you. And you could essentially say, this is direct trade coffee from Guatemala. Mm -hmm. And you bought it from the grocery store. Um, my, the transparency side of that is, is that Kevin and I are super passionate about the relationship. So back to like all these things we're talking about, we do the same thing with coffee and it's taken a really, really long time for us to actually understand what that is. And so as of the end of last year, uh, there was a huge hurricane that hit Honduras and Ben's best, or not, no, not Ben, sorry. Ben is the best friend of Kevin, who is essentially one of the most sought out exporters and coffee producers in all of Honduras. Um, and he and Kevin basically talk every day. And Ben Hamin is his name. Ben Hamin Paz is an incredible, like, I mean, he has some of the, Honduras is known for uh, what's called Circle of Excellence. It's essentially the best coffees in the world are produced in Honduras. They have, I think, I don't know how many they have. They have a lot in this particular mountain that they grow coffee on has a ton of these coffees that comes from these producers. And so Ben Hamin is sought out by all. I mean, you're talking about the best of the best, you know, Blue Bottle, Intelligentsia, Verve, George Howe, um, Stumptown, you know, all these big, huge specialty coffee names. Well, when the hurricane hit and when the pandemic actually was prior to the hurricane, I should say, let me back up prior to the hurricane that hit at the end of the year um, during the pandemic, the coronavirus essentially caused a ripple effect in the coffee community as well. Coffees were not leaving exportation and you talk about a supply chain. So essentially all of these contracts that were pre-signed. So the way that I purchase coffee is I buy coffee before it gets, it takes about three to four months to get to the United States before I actually see it. So wow, I'm receiving samples from Bolivia. I received samples from Bolivia a month and a half ago, six weeks ago. I, tomorrow I sign the contract, put down the deposit. I won't see those coffees until probably March or April. Is this like futures contracts? So it's like, is it, is it, it kind of like that where like you're going to buy it once it hits a certain price? No, it's not like that. Okay. I lock in my price. Got so it. direct trade is is that essentially I, I'm not I'm not taking any. I, the gamble I take is if the coffee gets here in good condition or not, yeah. <laughs> or if it gets stuck on the ocean. And we've definitely had that in the pandemic, but. What come out of, what's come out of this whole thing with the pandemic and for us is that we saw a ton of these huge coffee companies drop their contracts with Ben Hamin. And he was left with a ton of single, like small farming producers. And basically Kevin was like, We're gonna we're gonna do he's a are you guys Enneagram guys? Like 
Uh, we're familiar with it. Okay. Um, I don't think you haven't done it, and I, I haven't done it. So he's he's a he's a he's a hard seven. He's like so. Paul Gunther is a seven. He's can you, just a, can you explain what a seven? So is? a seven is somebody who is just like highly entrepreneurial. Like they will start things. Like they don't need a lot of explanation. They're just going to start doing. And so they don't think a lot about it. They like they get in a room and like everything just kind of ma- like they'll just make the best out of it. And they're like, no, no problem. We can get that done. Boom, boom, boom. Like so, when this pandemic hit and Ben Hameen came to Kevin, he didn't even think about it. It was an actual response. He's like, you have how many coffees? We'll sell them. And he's like, we're going to start something new, and we're basically going to take this relationship model to the next level. And it was like he didn't even he didn't even think about it. And he's like, he called it. It's called Bonaventure. So Bonaventure is a new tool that essentially. We haven't actually come to this full, like, what it's going to actually be, but I can give you an essence of how we buy coffee and why it's important to this conversation. Bonaventure is a basically a buying group that is going to influence how we buy coffees in certain countries. So right now we have nine, nine countries that we work in, and essentially we're inviting roasters who are on the same mission to buy coffee, not through just, like, contractual agreements when coffee's good. So that's the dirty side of coffee. You and I could go and buy a coffee good one year and then the coffee coffee producer produces the same coffee and it's not good and we're like, we're not going to buy your coffee this year. We're going to buy your neighbor's coffee because it's better. Well, if I'm truly in a relationship model, I basically just kicked this guy out of the equation and now he can't provide for his family. So our goal is is to essentially find other roasters who are like-minded that like, yeah, we'll have great coffees and we can our coffees can get there in terms of you know working with farmers directly and helping them. I mean, a lot of these farmers don't have the resources. So giving them new resources and back to the idea of provision, you know, not to overcomplicate this, but essentially what Bonaventure is setting out to do is to basically be super transparent in the buying process to create long-lasting relationships. And by doing that with other roasters in a small group, so like we're thinking like nine to 10 roasters around the country, almost like a buying co-op, but we're not, essentially we're not starting a business we're just creating a mechanism that allows us to say, okay, we know as a whole totality, we can buy five containers of coffee in Honduras. Let's build those relationships in Honduras and buy those five containers as a group, as a whole. And then that will also eliminate us from financing the coffee through another broker, through contracts that basically the farmers aren't going to get paid. Cause these are problems too. Like coffee farmers don't always get their money up front. So we basically have created mechanisms that we're all buying coffee together that helps finance the coffee. So the coffee farmers are paid and their premiums. And then we actually decrease the cost of coffee because we're putting coffees in our own containers. Now we're not using somebody else to do them. Essentially the product's going to come to us cheaper. And let's just say I run through my product and you haven't run through yours. I can call Kevin at St. Frank, like, dude, have you moved through this lot? And he's like, no, can I help you out? Because I still need some of the, I need, I still need some more Honduras for a, a, a blender. And he's like, dude, that'd be amazing. So we create this support network within one another. So essentially, I mean, we'll run into complications. Like there's always growth complications, but the goal is, is to hopefully find, as we start talking about this to other like-minded roasters, we're, we're disrupting specialty coffee. And there's not a lot of people who are super stoked about it because we're telling the dirty secret of specialty coffee, which is the, the, the buyer is unaware of all of these things that are happening. Like you can go to the grocery store and look at like 50 coffees. There, there's probably 1% of those coffees that are actually truly direct trade. There's like huge like organic labels. There's all these weird kind of like ways that people label coffee. And you're like, well, how do you, how do you know this is fresh roasted? Like usually it's a local product that's on the groceries from the grocery stores partner with the local roaster. Is Starbucks one of the worst offenders of this? <laughs> <sighs> yes and no. Um, I've seen 
great things where they've built like really long lasting relationships. And I've seen places where they've basically harmed culture. Um, but essentially Starbucks created a platform for other guys like for me to be and come in and change the game. And if you notice, Starbucks is changing radically right now. They are remodeling and reinventing their image in the workplace. And they are definitely a, re- a force to be reckoned with. And I hope that, you know, I, I, the consumers are becoming more aware of like certain practices. And I mean, everybody still buys from Amazon, even though they know all the things that Amazon does bad for. It's convenience. So convenience still trumps you know, heart throbbing, like how many people are you actually going to get to, to be ambassadors for your brand truly? Like, you know, here's an example, like we could all buy like clothing that isn't made by, you know, slaves and poor practices, but how many of us actually look at the labels that we're buying our clothes from? And like, how long, how, how sustainable is that? Like you can do your best part. And I tried to do that once and it was like almost impossible. And it was frustrating just to try to get clothes. Like I'm not that diehard, like I want to be, but it, it, culture makes it really like really hard to do that so you know back to the to the coffee side of that you know our hope with in in the buying process and you and we started off with you know isn't it close to wine it's very close to wine the difference is it's it's predominantly grown in third world countries and there's it's a commodity that's traded on the open market space that has a huge gap between what coffee costs which is what's called sea market price to what the farmers are actually paid and so our goal is to raise the bar above standard to pay farmers, you know, two, three, four times what they would normally make for that coffee to create sustainability and come alongside them and partner. And we're seeing like amazing, like we were just in Kenya and um, we are negotiating land with the Catholic church to basically, there's a rift, it's called the Rift Valley region. Um, essentially what was once a monastic community that was growing coffee which has now become basically like it's almost abandoned and it's this beautiful region of like high altitudes. Canyon coffees are beautiful. Like they're just really, really beautiful coffees. Essentially we're going to be hoping that we're going to be leasing land from the, the the Catholic church to grow coffee and work with another co-op, which is called the KCC to essentially bring and to basically bring life back into this rift Valley. That's predominantly been growing tea for a really long time. Um, and had grown coffee in the past. And so um, to see the people who are involved in that project, like to see what's going to, I mean, we've have tons of, we've already faced tons of challenges in the process of just trying to negotiate with the Catholic church, like to actually talk to the bishop. But like we keep seeing from a God perspective, like we keep having these avenues where all of a sudden, like somebody knows somebody that knows somebody that gets us in contact with the bishop. And all of a sudden, like we're back into the negotiating seat. And like you guys have been to Africa. So there is that thing that like there is African stuff that goes on, like where you pay off people to do this. Like that's real. Um, You guys got to experience that. I mean, Palmer, you know, has definitely preached about that when we were at the Grove. Like there's an African style of how to do business versus an American way. And it's just like, you just need to get it done. (laughs) So we're dealing a little bit. And that's, that's country to country. That's what makes it challenging. I don't just work in Napa Valley or, you know, Santa Barbara County and grow Pinot Noir and like, my biggest complication is, you know, dealing with, you know, the competitive of the market space. I actually deal with people who don't have resources that I'm moving coffee thousands of miles in a shipping container that I get four to five months later that potentially can be damaged in shipping. So there's a ton of people who are touching coffee in the process that make coffee very, very complicated. But the consumer only knows, I need caffeine. This is good. Great. I'm on my way. It's convenient, right? That's why K-cups have been like, you know, um, changing the world of coffee, right? Because it's convenient. It's like, what is it? Two minutes from start to finish. And all of a sudden you have a cup of coffee and you're ready to go done. Right? So our goal is to hopefully inform the customer so that they 
can basically start changing the way that they think a little bit. And it's, it's a long-term play. I mean, again, we serve the top 5% coffees in the world. So like, even though like we may not be buying the, what I would call like the, you know, the bangers, um, the really good coffees sometimes that are like really, really expensive that some of the other coffee companies do buy. Most people just want like a, just a decent cup of coffee and we could definitely blow their expectation out of the water because we know of how we've sourced and the people we're dealing with. And we're seeing relationships that we've had for seven, eight, nine years that are progressing more and more because of the relationship, the continual buying. Like I get, I get, Kevin and I get options at coffee before Blue Bottle and Intelligentsia because of our relationship. Mm. We have favor with the relationships because we don't play games with, hey, we might buy your coffee, or we might not. We're saying, hey, once we say we're going to buy coffee from you, unless you change your mind that you don't want to sell us coffee, then that's the only thing that changes the game. And so we relationally will try to buy coffee from the same farmers year in and year out to build stability and bring longevity to the relationship and then bring it back to, you know, if you really want to learn more about it, St. Frank has done an amazing job. You can look at the transparency report and read Kevin's blog. He's, he's an ex-ministry guy like me. He's done a much better job at actually communicating that to the customer. And that's our goal with provision is to tell that to customers because people are curious. I mean, you, you ask the question, it's like, there's so much there that you're like, you could really geek out on and be like, oh my gosh, I had no idea. That's great. So I want to touch on your, the impact of COVID on your retail operation. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I'm sure it's been something you've It was weird. Um, You know, we, we didn't experience, we were very fortunate. So uh, if I would have had a drive-through, it would have destroyed it. I mean, people like the lines for Dutch bros and BlackRock were crazy. Uh, What portion of your revenues were... You know, people coming in the front door and ordering a cup of coffee. So we went during, you know, when, when nobody could actually go, we closed the inside. So we were pretty adamant about until we saw um, the numbers dramatically drop and where we could see a consistent drop day after day. We saw a reduction, I think it was up to nine days. We wanted to see the, the, the needle keep moving down until we invited people back into the space. And so what ended up happening for us was, is that we, I mean, we weren't like profitable, but we weren't losing money. Um, we were able to, with the PPP, you know, support and also just having the support of our customers. I mean, we were selling bottles of booze. We were selling eggs. We were selling flour. Like we took everything in the store that we used because we're very Arizona of products like driven. So our our prices tend to be higher because we actually use products from small farmers in Arizona, like from our, all the way down to our honey to even our bitters, which is created here in Arizona by someone who creates bitters for us. And we started selling those products to our clients. So like you could get spiced honey, you could get raw honey, you could get the bread that we used. Um, we started, we reached out to, um, uh, a couple different vendors in town. We had some oats. We had, I mean, we turned into like a, basically an old school, small grocery. And we were legitimately like, we were, we were blown away at how the response to that was in the retail. And that kept us alive. And then it slowly picked up and, you know, we've been, I mean, we were prior to COVID, we, we were way exceeding our expectations for a coffee shop. I mean, we were doing numbers that we were just like, not even thinking we were ever going to get to until like year four or five. And we were in year two. And so it, it was a dip, but it wasn't enough of a dip that it caused a problem but we had, we had to cut back in hours and, you know, there was the CARES Act, which definitely helped navigate through. We used every resource that we possibly could. We were pretty creative in our financial structure. We didn't make any money, but we didn't lose any money, which was really good. But then we took out an SBA and basically, you know, we started to fill in the gaps where we needed to essentially give people, had to give people raises or like hire more people or like to support because it changed the structure of our business. 
we were a sit down coffee shop that had to go option, which we became basically a to go option with limited seating. So that's changed. I mean, we, we have not served in ceramics and glassware since, you know, we closed the doors back in March. Wow. But here, the interesting thing was, is we saw our numbers shift dramatically. We saw when we went to a to go option and we're just paper and plastic, we were actually doing higher volumes during our busy hours because we weren't having to do dishware. So it was really interesting to see some of the things and and we're like, okay, we just need it. I mean, as much as it's really nice to drink out of a ceramic cup, I don't know if we'll ever go back to ceramics just because it doesn't make sense from a business model when you're losing five to 7% on an item. So those are interesting things that happen, but we were able to pivot. Our team handled it. And it's the hardest part though, is honestly the face masks. We are highly like relational and people come to coffee shops, not just to get coffee, especially like specialty shops. They come for engagement, you know, that habitual routine, like meeting a barista, like studies have shown that just in, just a simple hello and knowing someone's name has the ability to create so much chemically in your body is why you come back, not just for the caffeine. It's how people make you feel. And so we have always leaned towards being highly relational and having the skill set to engage with people. So not being able to see someone, half of someone's face, we had like a three hour training on how to like basically engage with your eyes and use your hands more so that the customer knew that you were actually engaged with them versus saying like, you know, if, if you're at home and you're visualizing a mask, like how many times have you looked at somebody and you're just like, I don't even think they see me. I think they're just going through the motions. Yeah. And you're like, damn, this is like, I mean, I've been at the grocery store. I'm like trying to talk to somebody and they're like, okay, have a good day. <laughs> you're just like, cool. Uh, so it, it's, it's taken a lot of effort and our team has experienced, I mean, we opened up like, new conversations of like, how are you doing mentally? Like one-on-ones, mental health, that that became something really huge for us is just asking people and then how we could support them. Um, because that in, in lieu helped us basically find some ways to love on them so that they could love on people. Because people who work in service, they don't, I mean, they like the money, but they really feed off people. Mm-hmm. And so when you take the mechanism of turning people into robots, all of a sudden, you lose the interaction and the, and we get energy from other people in interaction. So now all of a sudden you have people working in service with no energy and you run into some huge issues and people are like already on tilt between politics and the pandemic. And it's like, we had some pretty angry customers sometimes, Yeah, I bet. especially, you know, what, depending on what side you land on the, on the political scale, it yeah. was like, we live in a very affluent area that happens to be pretty liberal and, you know, also on the swing, like very conservative. So it's like, how do you serve these people well and just love on them? Like, we just want to give you a cup of coffee and make you <laughs> smile. We don't want to like talk about politics. So um, we were able to weather it and we, we've seen, you know, our numbers kind of backing to stabilize it. We're stabilizing, but who knows? I mean, every day, like I've seen tons of businesses and peers shut down. Like we're very fortunate that we are kind of pandemic proof. And I mean, um, coffee is one of the few businesses that you're seeing. Like if I wanted to open a drive through right now, the real estate for drive through is just like through the roof. I couldn't afford it because there's so much demand mm-hmm. that because people who are business people are looking at like, Oh my gosh, we can open a coffee shop and open a drive through and make, you know, a couple million dollars. Yep. Um, which, you know, Hey, that's, that's capitalism for you. It's a lot of coffee. <laughs> it's a lot of coffee, bro. Lawrence, will you tell us one where they can go if they want to get a to go cup of coffee from provision and how they can find out more about your business? So uh, we are located at 4501 North 32nd Street in Phoenix, Arizona, which is considered Arcadia Light. Um, If you're not familiar with the area, it's between Indian School and Camelback. 
you can basically get there whether you're coming from any part of town um and we have a that's our flagship model it's a 1300 square foot with a huge 800 square foot patio we do a full um cocktail menu um, we're known for coffee and cocktails um so you can you can see go to provisioncoffee.com um you'll notice that there's a you know for here or to go option type of menus on there you can navigate through the website um, we have subscriptions that we've launched for people who basically don't want to go out and we can ship anywhere in phoenix um, currently right now we're basically it's five dollar flat shipping so we've reduced our cost um, to the customer essentially so that we can make coffee more available we have subscription plans and then we've got a variety of coffees right now um, that are really really awesome um, and that's provisioncoffee.com Rock and awesome, roll, man. man. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, it was super fun. Uh, excited to be here and uh, much love. Hell yeah. <laughs>